0: The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church.
1: Sometimes you just don't want to stop as we are together worship the Lord. It's wonderful to hear other brothers and sisters and voices around us, uh, around you together, coming before the Lord. A little foretaste of what we have to look forward to in heaven. This morning I'm feeling a little vulnerable as I'm talking about the role of pastor. Um, I feel vulnerable every time I get up, actually. something could be used against me, but um, particularly today, and uh, yet I believe that indeed God has guided and uh, there's never time enough to say what wants wants to be said or could be said, but I believe the Lord has um, helped us this morning and just want to commit it to God as we begin. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in your grand design for humanity your grand design for your church, and indeed, Lord, your incredible, intimate design for each one of us. This morning, as uh, we talk about the role of pastors in churches, I pray that, Lord, you might uh, reveal just a little bit more to us of ways that we can be the church you've called us to be. And uh, we give you the praise, Lord Jesus. You are the chief shepherd, and we follow you in your name. a woman by the name of Ann Tyler wrote a novel called Morgan's Passing. And in the story, the main character is a middle-aged Baltimore man uh, by the name of Mr. Morgan, who actually has the interesting life of moving in and out of people's lives and and assuming different roles and meeting different expectations. We meet the uh, principal character, on a Sunday afternoon, and he was sitting on the front lawn of the church, and there is a puppet play going on behind a curtain. And uh, as the puppet play continues, all of a sudden in the middle of it, there's someone runs from behind the curtain and yells, is there a doctor here? And uh, for 20 seconds or so, there's, there's no response, nothing happens, no one comes forward. And so finally, Mr. Morgan gets up from his chair, walks slowly forward, and talks to the man, and he says that the puppeteer's wife is pregnant, and she's about to have a baby any any second now. And uh, so he just follows the guy, and he leads them to his station wagon, and Mr. Morgan puts them in the back seat, and all, all on the way to the hospital, to John Hopkins Hospital, um, the uh, husband says, it's coming, we got to stop. So Mr. Morgan slowly, calmly pulls the car over and... Uh, he tells the husband to go to the corner store, get some newspaper to be used as sheets, and promptly delivers the baby in the back seat of the car. Then he carries on to the hospital, and, and as he gets there, he hands the couple baby with the baby in arms over to the emergency uh, uh, nursing staff and disappears. A couple hours, the couple emerges from the hospital room with their baby, and they go to the nursing station. and they They say, "We'd like to talk to Dr. Morgan. Could you page him?" And uh, they said, "There's nobody here named Dr. Morgan. We don't know a Dr. Morgan." And so now, fast forward a few months down the road, and they're they're on the street with their baby carriage, and they see across the street Mr. Morgan, and they run across, and they're so excited, and they. They tell him, "Thank you, thank you. you know, here's our baby. You delivered him. He's so wonderful." And, and uh, finally, in a fit of honesty, he says, I, "I've got to tell you, I'm I'm not a doctor. I'm I run a hardware store. And, uh, you know, I just I just did what you needed me to do. And 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 that's what happened. And so, what does that have to do with being a pastor? <laughs> Is it just about faking it? You know." Uh, Well, I think it has this to do with being a pastor, that uh, pastoral ministry could be all about meeting expectations and fulfilling needs among a group of people. And it could be faked. But there's so much more to it than human need and expectation. And uh, Eugene Peterson writes this. He says that being a pastor who satisfies a congregation is one of the easiest jobs on the face of the earth if you can be satisfied with merely satisfying a congregation. And that's the crux of it, isn't it? In the end of the novel, by the way, Mr. Morgan ends up harming a lot of lives by his antics. And um, I think that pastoral ministry, we can harm a lot of lives as well. What is the role of the pastor? And... Who is it that we seek to please, and are we simply elected ministers that serve a constituency and work to keep them happy, or do we have something higher to call to, and is the meeting of expectations really meant to be our raison d'etre, or might it be that we have at times not to meet expectations for something that's higher and greater? Paul, in writing to the Corinthian church in chapter 4, verse 2, says, It is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. And then he goes on to say that he is only judged by God. And uh, that's who he's going to appear before one day. Am I suggesting that it's wrong for us pastors to try and meet needs and expectations of the church and that we should be not trying to please people? No, I'm not saying that at all. In fact, all of us pastors want to please as many of you and as often as we can. But our gaze must be first on pleasing God. For He is the one who gave us the trust, called us apart, gave us the calling, and he is the, un, uh, the shepherd of which we are simply under-shepherds of. And our ministry is simply to carry on his agenda among the people of God. And sometimes we get it right, and sometimes we get it wrong. Between the needs and expectations and the call of God, we tend to meander back and forth on that path, not always on the straight and narrow Last week we began our equipping series on uh, this coming few months called Equipping the Body of Christ. We examined foundational truth that all of humanity is got a purpose from God, is created in the image of God. And we as humans are not the creatures God intended us to be because sin came into each one of our lives and has broken that image. We are literally broken image bearers of God, carrying around something of the divine glory and yet marred and twisted by sin. And in that brokenness, it, it, there's many faces to that brokenness. Uh, when Christ appeared on earth, God sent the answer to the brokenness. God, uh, someone, an author, Major Ian Thomas, said that when Jesus Christ appeared on earth, There appeared, for the first time since Adam, a man as God intended man to be. And so that's why we make so much of Jesus, because indeed, in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we believe that He lives now to bring about the restoration and the correction and the healing of that brokenness that all of us carry within us, and that we indeed are called to reflect the glory and image of God. That's why we make so much of Jesus. And, and really, what I've just described in terms of God's purpose for all of humanity, out of that flows our, the pastoral job description. We are simply in, in trying to keep in line with what God has called uh, all of us to. Jesus is our chief shepherd, and we fo- follow him, and our work flows out of his work. We are farmers among men and women, boys and girls, cultivating the image of God in each person, building them up into the likeness of Christ. God is on a mission, and we are simply joining with God on His mission to minister to broken lives, to heal. We are co-conspirators with God. We acknowledge it's not one ounce of surprise in any of us as pastors when we get to know someone new that's coming through the doors as a parishioner and we are not one bit surprised that in that person is a sleepy idolatry and if we are going to fulfill our ministry to shepherd that soul into the kingdom of God, we have to be somewhat subversive. Because I know that you, when you come in just like me, are committed, first of all, to the kingdom of self. With a passion. And God's mission is rooting out that self to bring you into the kingdom of the Son of God that he loves. And make you into the image of Jesus Christ. That's not going to happen without a little bit of hurt, without a bit of a little confrontation. And so we are co-conspirators with God on his mission. John Piper defines spiritual leadership this way, knowing where God wants people to be and taking the initiative to get them there by God's means and in God's power. So let's take a look at the outline that's in your bulletin. I have four points I'd like to make this morning. I'd like to look at the pastoral role from the world's perspective. I'd like to consider it in the traditional church's perspective. I want to unpack what might be the scriptural mandate for uh, pastors as God intended. And then finally, I want to conclude with implications that arise out of following after God's purposes for pastors. First of all, What is it that we see as popular misconceptions in the world about the role of pastor? I'm always fascinated and interested in the response that I get when I meet someone new and the subject of what you do for a living comes up. Pat has tried to encourage me not to use the word pastor, but somehow I just gravitate towards it because I like to see the response. It was great when we were missionaries, we could say, well, we're field staff with an international agency sounded a little easier, and they, everybody let you off on that one, didn't need to know anything further. But when you say you're a pastor, uh, there's this interesting response. Sometimes it's a rather awkward yet polite, I have heard that word, but I have no idea what it means kind of response. Sometimes it's more of a, I feel sorry for you kind of response. <laughs> Sucks to be you kind of response, you know. See, for many people, the role of pastor is simply an undefined profession. It's just, just the plain and simple. I don't hold it against them. It's just an undefined profession. I'm reading a book right now called The Pastor as Public Theologian by Kevin Van Hooser and Owen Strachan. And in the preface of, of the book, the, one of the authors, who is a seminary professor, talks about a student who came to him and uh, he, he talked about, uh, he was asking wisdom, advice on what God's leading him into for the future and, and he was concerned that, he, he wanted to go on in studies, but he was concerned that his grades weren't high enough to go into the doctoral level of studies. And in the conversation, the, the, the gentleman, the young man actually literally said to his professor, please don't tell me I'm only smart enough to be a pastor. The role of pastor has fallen on hard ground everywhere, even in seminaries. And um, I think that we need to recover a biblical view. Even Hollywood or current literature, um, I'm always attuned to what, how the minister, the, the reverend, the priest, the pastor, whatever, how he or she is presented. And, and uh, almost never a flattering role. Pastors are... Prideful prigs or stiff and stuffy or wimps and wusses. They're portrayed as in some unbecoming manner that has little impact on the plot or the world around them. They are hand holding, tea sipping, Bible thumping, men of the cloth that are so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. Am I sounding a little defensive? <laughs> it's true. Oh, I'm glad. It's true that they're presenting us that way. Okay, thank you for the clarity. <laughs> <laughs> so the authors asked the question at the beginning of the book, what do pastors have to say and do in the world today that no one else is saying and doing? It's a fair question. Kevin and Doug and the other Kevin and I, <laughs> and I need to answer that question. And so do you. Here's the question in its completion, in its complete form. What do pastors have to say and do that other people in helping professions, in brackets, psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers, and so forth, are not already doing and often doing better? End of quote. The authors state that because of an eroding Identity, many pastors have borrowed from other helping professions and have become therapists in search of a professional title that the world can understand. And so pastors study clinical psychology and sociology and in many instances have learned more about human nature and community from the secular world and its models than from God's Word and theological thinkers. Now I have a problem with that. The net result is that the clergy, as a group, has lost any vestige of cultural jurisdiction over personal problems in this world. So what are the authors saying? The authors are essentially saying this, that if I as a pastor were to speak in the marketplace of a matter related to mental health and psychiatric care or psychology and sociology, I would largely be ignored for being unqualified. If, on the other hand, I speak of that which I have been trained for as a professional, theology and Bible, even though I will equally be ignored, being irrelevant, redundant, kind of like tonsils or appendix, dinosaurs, even though my training, Bible and theology, has taught me much that has something to say to, to the matters of life, and marriage, and family, and psychology, and mental health, and sociology, and a whole list of other subjects. Do you hear what I'm saying? You see, in the world's eyes, we're this poor you, like you are relegated to a rather small sector of society. Postmodern enlightenment has dissected humanity into several parts, and even the part that is now called spirituality, which historically we pastors were trained to be experts on, has been cut from its moorings and left drifting on an ocean of choices from secular humanism to eastern mysticism and everything in between. Imagine yourself maybe studying studying a, a subject matter, a profession For years, let's take computer science, for example, only to find that when you graduate, all the systems have completely different language and operating systems so that you now are relegated to work in a very isolated sector of the computer world that uses that old technology. That's, I think, the way the world sees pastor. Let's move to the church. The sad commentary on the perceived role of pastor in the world is lifted somewhat in the church, but there's still a, a considerable uh, level of misunderstanding and confusion in the church. I'm sure that even in this room, if we were to talk about the role of pastor, you would we would find varied uh, conversations and, and opinions. The authors of a different book uh, called The Trellis and the Vine, Marshall and Payne, survey the role of pastor over the past centuries. So they go back to the 1700s, the 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 pastor was the master of biblical and theological knowledge, and that knowledge still was shaping secular society outside of the church. In the 18th century, later on, uh, the evangelist and revivalist preacher into the 19th century became the pastoral image, the evangelist revivalist preacher. Then in later on, the builder of churches and congregations into the 20th century, in the early part, this, this service-providing clergyman. Uh, this is what we need from you. Into later, the baby boomer stage of the 20th century, we became the managers of peoples and programs in churches. That was what baby boomers want. In some traditions, the community activist. Into the 20 and 21st century now, we we have models of more of administrative gurus, CEOs of big organizations. And of course, there's other models like spiritual director of personal individual souls and so on. Now, all of these perhaps have an element of truth, but do they get to the heart of what God's Word teaches about pastor? So let's move to the third point, and that is pastors as God intended... And if we open up the scriptures, we do not see a ready-made job description of what pastor is meant to be. But rather what we see is a whole list of metaphors and models of what pastors should be. And uh, they come from Jesus and from the apostles. And so let's begin with the first one, and that is the word pastor, which means literally shepherd. And shepherd is, of course, an incredibly powerful image, Jesus is called the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd. He is our example. In John chapter 10, we read in verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. And so implicit in this metaphor for pastors is the example of Jesus. The self-sacrificing attitude of a a person that lays down his life for the sake of the sheep. There is this not counting of the hours, not worried about the sacrifice, not concerned about the paycheck, not self-absorbed in your own needs, but attentive to the needs of the flock is the attitude of the shepherd. Pastors are loyal servants of God, under-shepherds of Jesus... And that's what they do. That's how they live. It's not a job. It's not a job. It's a calling. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 2, Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that will never fade. Paul in Ephesians or in Acts chapter 20, talking to the Ephesian pastors and elders, he says, This keep watch over yourselves first, and then all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. So, what is the shepherd imagery? God is saying, God is saying, You who are called into this role of pastor, I am. Entrusting in into your very hands, my people, that my son bought with his own blood, that the Holy Spirit has gifted you and set you apart to lead. I mean, this is this is an incredible calling, and I encourage young people: if you're not called into the pastoral ministry, don't go there. If you can do anything else and be content, go and do it. God will hound you if you're called and he'll he'll have to you'll have to submit one day to his calling but if you are not called go and do what god what you can be pleased and content in serving the lord doing and so that's the first metaphor the second one is farmer from paul in corinthians chapter 3 verse 6 he says i planted the seed apollos watered it but god made it grow so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. We are God's fellow workers. God's field. So the picture here of pastors and spiritual leaders is that of a farmer harvesting souls in the fruitful maturing of God's people like a good crop. Be concerned about this good crop that is coming to fruition, whether it's planting or watering or weeding or cultivating or whatever is going on, uh, the work is done with this attitude that there's one that is the Lord of the harvest and it's Him we serve, and we're not competing over each other's turf or role because it's all about Him. Him. The emphasis Paul makes in this metaphor is that the worker must not become overinflated with his or her own part. We could do nothing of value without God. He goes right on to another metaphor in chapter 3, verse 10. And he uses the metaphor of a builder. Pastors are like builders. He writes, "By the grace that God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it, but each one should be careful how he builds, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, or costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light." And then in 1 Corinthians 3:16, later later on, he says, For don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and God's spirit lives in you? So here the emphasis in that metaphor is on the quality of pastoral ministry. Here the emphasis is on the fact that either you build your ministry on the foundation of Jesus Christ or or you can, it doesn't matter what you do because God's not really interested. If you're not building your ministry On Jesus Christ. There's no other foundation that can be laid, God says, in his work. So number one is you make much of Jesus because he's everything. And then secondly, he says, you watch the quality of the building materials that you use when you're building your ministry on the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And you'll notice in this text that he uses two types of building materials. He starts with the gold and the silver and the costly stone And then the second triplet is the wood and the hay and the straw. And he says that when the day, capital D, comes, that day of judgment, and when the fire of God descends upon every one of us and all the pile of good works that we've accumulated, the gold and the silver and the costly stones are going to receive that fire, intense heat, and they're hardly going to diminish in size. But the wood and the hay and the straw are going to be a little pile of ashes and we'll have very little to show God on the day of resurrection. And so Paul says, you be careful how you build. You be careful how you build. That metaphor confronts us in the quality of pastoral ministry, of the caring and curing of souls. A fourth metaphor that comes out is the spiritual parent. Now, I know that I'm old enough to be some of you father, a father to some of you. I'm young enough to be a son to some of you. So it's not about the age, it's about the role of pastor. Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, 19, talking to the Galatian Christians, he says, my dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Paul likens pastoral ministry, in this case, to the Galatian church like, like having a baby until Christ is formed in you. That's what labor as a pastor looks like. Seeing the image of Christ come out in each one of us. In 1 in Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7 He says, as apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her little children. Verse 11, for you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Fathers, that's what you do. You urge, you comfort, you encourage your children so that they would that they would live lives worthy of God. Mothers, you nurture your children. Pastors are described as mothers or fathers, nurturing, encouraging, urging. And that's what we're called to be and do. Eugene Peterson, in one of his books, makes the comparison between running a home and running the church. In each of us who run homes, we, we recognize that running a home is paying bills And it's uh, cutting grass and shoveling snow and fixing plumbing. But the primary role of parents who are running homes is not all those things. The primary role of parents who are running homes is having a healthy marriage and nurturing your children wisely in the Lord and receiving hospitality to those that you bring in. That's the real function of running a home. And similarly, Eugene Peterson says, in the church, we pastors who run the church are also in in those two camps. Yeah, bills need to be paid. Snow needs to be be shoveled. And all the things need to be done. But what's the real point of church? It's about discipled believers. It's about curing of souls. It's about the the dealing with um, all the issues of bringing people under the lordship of Christ. And so pastors function in the church like parents, good parents, do in the home. It's not about the house. It's about what goes on in and through the house, right? That's the the focus. The fifth model I'd like to share with you is that of being a teacher-equipper. And this is found in our key text for this whole sermon series, Ephesians 4.12. You can see it on the banners at the front that Giersch prepared for us. And it's got verse 12 on to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. You see, in verse 11, Paul mentions the word pastor-teacher And then he goes right into the point of what's the role of a pastor-teacher. It's to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ can be built up. We can all reach this unity and maturity and speak the truth in love. And we can all have our part and the kingdom will come and God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now what's that word prepare in verse 12? Well, that's the word equip. That's the word equip. It actually is an interesting word in other literature at the time of Paul. The word equip was used to describe a medical term that fixed a bone that was broken. A a bone that was broken was equipped, and and that word is the same word. It was also used in Matthew 4.21, describing the fishermen in the Sea of Galilee, mending their nets, fixing their nets mending their nets, cleaning them up and getting them ready to send, be sent back out for fishing. So what's the pastor's role in light of this verse? It's this working with God's people in the brokenness of our damaged image-bearing selves and bringing about that correcting, that healing Mending, repairing with the view of being fully equipped to now go out into the world, resume the ministry that you have in your neighborhood, in your school, in your workplace, called to be God's presence out there. The equipping ministry of a pastor, therefore, has many dimensions. It has to do with teaching correct beliefs, healing past hurts, understanding renewed identity, discovering how God's gifted each of us as individuals to serve, learning skills to assist in that service. Whatever is required to fit you, the church, the body of Christ, to be built up so that you can go out and serve God, that's my job. That's the job of all four of us. And you need to cooperate with us if we're going to get our job done. Well, let's go to the final point of the message this morning, and that is the implications of pastors pursuing what God intended. I have seven. We'll go quickly through them. I believe there's seven implications if we pursue what God wants. Number one is pastors must be shepherded if we're going to be shepherds. And not only do I mean under the lordship of Jesus, the great and chief shepherd, but I mean that, uh, that also under other men, we must be submissive. We must be following in accountability. And that's why I believe the New Testament teaches the plurality of pastoral ministry. Secondly, we must answer first to God in fulfilling the ministry that, that he has among his people. We must, as pastors, cultivate such a strong personal prayer life, a God reference point that that is not going to give in to the, the clamoring voices of what to do. And we must cultivate that. Listen to God. Number three, we must be equippers that are eager to serve God's agenda. We cannot succumb to the consumer mindset of doing it all for you. We believe that if God saved you by grace, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and then verse 10 that he prepared good works in advance for you to do then our job is to get you ready to do those good works and not do them for you number 4 that we must we must have a burden pastors have to have burdens second corinthians chapter 2 or second corinthians chapter 11 28 Paul has listed all the sufferings that he has faced for the sake of the gospel. I mean, beatings and shipwrecks and and all kinds of persecution. At the end of it all, what does he say? He says this, verse 28. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for the church, for the churches. You see, pastors have to have burdens. Pastors have to take their work home. If I met a pastor that didn't take his work home, I would say to him, You don't have the calling. Do something else. Pastors have to have people on their hearts and burdens for the churches they pastor. Fifthly, we must see the world as our parish, not the church. Pastors must have a world vision because the church is going to easily suck you in to a vortex of personal concerns but the lord's prayer reminds us that we have the need for daily bread the need to be not led into temptation the need for all the things the lord the lord's prayer asks us to ask for why so that his kingdom might come and that his will might be done where in the church no on earth on earth as it is in heaven. That's our, call. That's our vision. That's our parish. And as, as long as the church is with its gravitational pull. Going to suck the pastors into this inwardly focused monastic kind of vision. The pastoral calling calls us to sound the battle cry. To be missional instead of monastic. And to be out there where the world is lost. Fifth, sixthly, pastors must remain humble. Humility is connected to the word humus, which means ground, earth. It means that we need to keep our feet on the ground. We must be with the people. The shepherd has to smell like the sheep. And I I must say to you in my position as lead pastor now, I've gotten this one wrong. Sometimes. And finally... I want to say that the seventh thing is that we as pastors must labor constantly to confront the idols of our homes and our hearts. That we believe in the fact that we are all committed to this kingdom of self and Jesus Christ is rooting that out of our hearts and bringing us into the kingdom of the sunny He loves. And if we're going to be faithful to that calling... We must open the eyes of the people that we're responsible for. And not just to say this. I am not talking about only opening your eyes to the idols that enslave you and seek you. I'm wanting to open your eyes to the incredible beauty of Jesus Christ. You see, that's the only thing that's going to deal with the enslavement. It's opening your eyes to see the all-satisfying beauty of Jesus Christ over whatever else you have substituted Him for in your life to this date. That's the role of pastor. Pastor Alf, would you come up? And I would like to invite the other three pastors to join me at the front. And I would like you to look at the back of the insert that's in your bulletin. And uh, if you can, affirm... This vow that is in that insert, I would invite you to affirm it with us together. And Pastor Alf is going to lead us in this now.
0: Terry, as I listened to this sermon the second time, I was reminded of a saying I had in my office. I'm going to change the words very slightly and give them to you as a team. I think we should even get it up somewhere where you never forget it. I want to read it very carefully to you. One One sentence. Oh Lord, in all the noise of all the needs, of all the people, help me to hear your still, small voice. And then whatever you do will be different from any psychologist or any psychiatrist or any doctor or any professional pastor. Read it again. Oh Lord, in all the noise of all the needs, I'm not even talking about wants, I'm just talking about real needs, the noise of it all, of all the people. Help us to hear your still And I want us to understand that we commission and we commit these people to the ministry. And we understand what it's all about, at least we understand this sentence. And so I want us all to stand, take our yellow sheet, and we'll read it. And if you find yourself partway through really disagreeing with something, you don't say it. <laughs> you know this is not manipulation. This isn't twisting our minds. This isn't playing a church game. We all go along for the. This is serious stuff. And if your heart's not in it, don't say it. Just mumble so nobody else knows you're hiding something. <laughs> and then take it home and think it through. Shall we then as a group read it together? We are going to ordain you to this ministry and we want you to vow that you will stick to it. This is not a temporary job assignment. A way of life we need lived out in our community. We know you have launched the same difficult belief in the same dangerous world as we are. We know your emotions are pickles are ours. That's why we're going to ordain you and why we are going to exact a vow from you. We know there will be days, months, maybe even years, when we won't feel like believing anything and won't want to hear from you. and maybe even years when you won't feel like saying that. It. it doesn't matter. Do it. You're ordained to the ministry, vowed to it. The committee or delegation demand that you tell us something else and what we are telling you now. Promise right now that you won't give in to what we demand of you. You are not the minister of our changing desires or our time-conditioned understanding of our needs or our secularized hopes for something better. With these vows, we are dashing you master of the word, sacrament, so you'll be able to respond to iron voices. There are many other things to be done in this wrecked world. We're going to be doing a least some of them. But if we don't know the foundational realities with which we are dealing, God, kingdom, gospel, we are going to end up in living futile fantasy lives. Your task is keeping the big story, representing the presence of the Spirit, insisting on the priority of God, speaking on the biblical words of command, promise, and invitation. Uh, In my years at seminary, we had a course that I took on Pastors Spirituality. And uh, it was quite a profound course, and and it certainly shaped an awful lot of my thinking. But the professor had done a study of some 700 pastors in um, Great Britain, Scotland. And all of them had burned out. That was the selection list. And of the 700, 90% quit the ministry part way through. Of the 90%, 60% didn't even go to church anymore. This vow isn't just for here, and it isn't just for this church. It's for this community and our city but also our country and our world and you to carry it on till God takes you home. There's no quitting. Just do it. And we'll be behind you. And if you have to tell us things straight, tell us things straight. Most of us are over 21. We can take it we need the Spirit of God to speak to us sometimes through you and we want you to do it in God's name oh Lord our Father you are a holy and an awesome God and these four have answered your call not to this church although that in specific details or the truth of the moment. But call to your ministry, whatever that is, and make them deeply understand and grasp the breadth of what that's all about. Your love, which is beyond our understanding, your incredible mercy and grace, compassion. And may they. Prof- profoundly keep their eyes on you, their ears hearing your quiet voice while hearing the noisy needs of all us humans. Amen.